0: So this morning, we continue our Advent series. Um, This is the final week. It's the fourth week of of Advent, and it's also one week until Christmas, and we get to celebrate the reality that Jesus took on flesh and came and lived among us. So if you remember, last week we talked some about the Advent theme of joy, and we looked at Isaiah 61 as a model. As we read through Isaiah 61, it talks about uh, focusing on the fact that Jesus came and the fact that he is coming again and the joy that this brings us. And we watched how Isaiah uh, celebrated, his soul rejoiced in this good news. And also, too, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked some about peace. And uh, we talked some actually read right out of Romans and, and how we as followers of Jesus are called to be at peace with one another, to be at peace with those around us. Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, as far as it's up to you, be a person of peace. Work for peace, work for reconciliation. It's actually in his letter to the church in Corinth, too. He said, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, of bringing uh, groups together, bringing ourselves, bringing us together with people who we have difficulties with. And then we talked about that. The first week, we talked about the reality of our hope, our hope in Jesus, and that we wait in anticipation for him, that this world is broken and doesn't work the way that's supposed to anymore. And so we look forward to the day of his return. Well, this morning, as uh, one of the boys uh, up here talked about, uh, it is the Sunday or the, the advent of love, when we focus, again, on God's love for us and what love really means. And I've been thinking about some about uh, love for me. I think sometimes I am tempted to rely more on pragmatism than love. Sometimes I think, you know, love is nice and it feels nice and warm and fuzzy, but at the end of the day, I've got stuff to do and hard work and And I was thinking about it this week and how Paul's letter to the church in Corinth challenges me in that. Paul's talking to uh, Christians and he says, you know, if you can do all these amazing things, but you don't have love, you have nothing. He says, prophecies, they'll go silent. Knowledge will fade away. But these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Paul has a pretty high view of love. And it's challenging for me because I think I get caught up in the way our world talks about love. And I wonder if any of you can relate to this. Or maybe some of you start thinking, you know, love is good and it's nice, but, you know, at the end of the day, pragmatism kind of has to win out. And I start thinking about how love is, is used in our society, or how love is stretched and made thin. And a lot of times I think about how love is actually used for things like infatuation where or selfishness. And it gets labeled with this broad term of love. And I start thinking about the biblical understanding of love. How love is described in the scriptures. How the love of God is bigger. And it endures. And the love of God sacrifices for the sake of others. And how we can cut through maybe some of the, the sentimentality or the, the fluffy loviness of the Christmas season here and, and recover a biblical sense, a biblical idea of love, of what God's love is like. And as to help us with that, I wanted to read through Isaiah uh, 40, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles, if you want to open it to that passage, or if you want to just look here at the bulletin at the back of it, it has Isaiah 41 to 11. And I wanted to say uh, just one thing before we get into reading this, is that Isaiah was a prophet um, around the 8th century B.C., about 720-some years before Jesus, and He's speaking to the people of God. God had given these words to speak. And, and Isaiah's, it's really actually kind of mind-blowing for me <laughs> because God gave uh, words to Isaiah to speak to his immediate context, the, the very days that he was living in, as well as hundreds of years into the future when Israel would go into exile and further beyond that when they would return from exile and beyond that to uh, Jesus, to the birth of the Messiah and even beyond that to the future that we still wait for. So it's kind of complicated to hold all that together, how God has spoken through this one prophet for centuries, that addresses centuries of history. But uh, we start here, we're going to be reading today in Isaiah 41, and this is the 40th chapter. So we're starting right in the middle of the book. And if you've read through some of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 are not very famous (laughs) because they're hard. In Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, there's lots of hard... I mean, there's some beautiful parts and there's some hopeful pieces. There's a lot of warning and judgment. These are common themes in the first part of Isaiah. And then we get to Isaiah 40, verse 1. And this is what the Lord says. He says, "'Comfort, O comfort my people,' says your God. "'Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her, "'that her warfare has ended, "'that her iniquity has been removed, "'that she has received the Lord's of the Lord's hand double for all her sins.' A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. As I've been reading this passage and reflecting on it over this last week, I've been realizing that, first of all, that this passage talks about this amazing picture, this amazing picture of who God is. It's an amazing picture of God who is mighty and who is gentle and compassionate, who says, comfort, comfort my people, and who leads his people and gathers them up like a lamb and holds them to his chest. And if you read through this, if you look on your green sheet, there's actually actually four sections, four paragraphs. The first section begins with comfort, comfort my people, and we see this compassionate side of God. Then from verses 3 to 5, it talks about God and when he comes, how all of creation will respond says make, uh, make the high places low and the low places bring them up to make His way, to prepare the way for Him. And then in verses 6 to 8 it talks about humanity and our fickleness and how we are like grass, how we are here for a short time. And even it talks about our loveliness, but actually in the Hebrew it talks about chesed or it's our loving, our steadfast love. Is, even that's like grass or like flowers. It doesn't last very long. And then at the end it talks again about how God is this mighty one, like this mighty king who comes, who returns, and his reward is with him. And he loves his people like a shepherd loves his sheep and takes care of them. So these are just the four sections. Well, there's the part that I wanted to start with was the part and where it talks about what we are like as humanity and how fickle our, our way is, how fickle our love is. So it begins, and it begins talking about um, our humanity, and we need to reclaim love. I was thinking about it this week, and uh, how many romantic comedies there are made each year, right? Piles and piles of them. I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. Every once in a while they're nice, but but there's lots of them. But you know kind of the storyline, right? Uh, Boy meets girl. They have this moment then something comes in between them and the whole movie is about how this tension and then finally it resolves and at the end they love each other and everything is wonderful cuz they've only known each other for like 3 days and and how great it all is right i was thinking about how often do you see movies about the couple that's been married for 12 years and has the kids who can't sit still in church and you trip over the carpet and and are busy and who aren't surprised so much anymore. I mean, sometimes, I mean, there's definitely things that surprise us, things that we thought, oh, I thought I knew everything, and then you see something new. But then there's a lot of things where it's not so surprising. Even some things where you're not sure if that little trait still annoys you, or if if it's an endearing trait now. (laughs) You know, where are those movies, right? (laughs) And if there were those movies, who would pay money to go watch them? Because most of us live them, right? See, our world has stretched out love. It has taken love, this important, I mean, this thing that so much that Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians about love and how important it is. Our world has taken love and stretched it thin. And actually, you know, in, in other languages, I mean, in Hebrew and even Greek, there's different types of loves. And in English, we just have love. And it means everything from, like, oh, I love your decorations, to, oh, I love you, even though I've only known you for three days, all the way to, I love you, and I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Love covers this whole spectrum in English. So we need to recover this love. But I started thinking about this. In this passage here, it talks about how humanity is like grass, and how um, you know, the Lord is coming, the Lord is good and He loves His people, and there's nothing that's going to stop Him. Isaiah is trying to get to the point that no king, no earthly king, no empires, I mean, as mighty as they seem to us in human terms, they're like grass. They won't stand to the breath of the Lord. And also, too, it talks about our, our love, and actually in, the, in this passage it says their loving kindness, Right? Yeah, and all flesh is like grass and its loveliness is like the flowers of the field, its loveliness. It's interesting because in Hebrew it's actually chesed, which is the Hebrew word for God's steadfast love. This love of God has that's faithful no matter how bad things get, no matter how broken or rebellious people are against him, God continues to love. And so I hear that passage not just talking about their loveliness, like their qualities, but more that it's talking about our ability to love steadfast, to enduringly love, to love no matter how hard it gets, is like the flowers of the field. That compared to God, as even as humans, even our strongest love is still like flowers of the field that a hot wind comes and they shrivel. Or they sprout up and they're strong in spring, but by fall they're brown and wilted over. We need to reclaim this love of God, find out, or to recover this biblical understanding of love of what God loves us like. And so we hear some, there's this, there's this dichotomy of, of what God is like and then there's a short section of what humanity is like and how we're like grass. We just don't last. But then if you keep reading, actually if you remember what it's like in the beginning of this passage, of verse 1, it talks about the Lord God and he says, comfort, comfort my people. Now for us, um, generally as a society, I think it's harder for us to understand how important this comfort is. Some of you are going through a really difficult time right now. And you hear these words, comfort, comfort my people. It's like water on a dry soul. I think this is part of what it was like for the people of Israel, the people of God, when they first heard these words of Isaiah. Because if you remember, we talked about it, that Isaiah uh, verse 1 to 39 is talking about warning and judgment and about how people of God would go into exile. What that means is that a, a warring nation, uh, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they came and they took Israel and they took them out of the land and made them slaves in their own land. Can you imagine that? Living here, how good life is here. And some other nation coming, uprooting you and moving you to a new part of the world. And how important it would be to hear God say, comfort, comfort my people. When we hear God speaking comfort to his people, even though in just verse, uh, the few verses before, the few chapters before, God is speaking judgment. He's saying to the people of Israel, to the people of God, you guys have rejected me. I keep calling for you. I keep trying to love you and have you be faithful as my people. And you keep choosing other gods. You keep trusting other nations above me. And so part of the, the consequences of this is going into exile. And yet even as they go into exile, even as they know that this is where they're going to go, God still says, comfort, comfort my people. And it's interesting because then he says, speak to, um, right to the heart of Israel. And I know and actually in verse 2 it says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. I know the translators are trying to, to make it uh, really clear for us, but actually in Hebrew it says, speak right to the heart, right to the heart of Jerusalem and tell them that their hard service is over. And in Hebrew, this hard service, or this military this military, all the warfare has ended. And it's actually getting at the idea that in the ancient world, people, peasants, they were conscripted. It means that they were forced to be soldiers. When the country went to war, or the nation went to war, they'd gather any fighting age man, and they'd say, you're not a farmer anymore, grab whatever weapon you can find, and you're part of the army now. So the Lord God is saying to Israel, this time for you is over. Your time of conscription is over. Your sins have been removed. You've received double from the hand of God. He's saying that your time is done. Comfort. Comfort my people. Because they've already received double from the hand of God. Not only the pain of rebelling against God. Many of us know what that's like when we know what we're supposed to do and yet we continue to choose what we're not supposed to do or things that are sinful we know the pain of that even in the moment we're doing we know like oh this feels horrible but i just this is what i feel i have to do we know the pain of that but not only that we see the pain of that and we see the pain of the consequences that follow israel had the same thing the people of god they had this same problem because they kept choosing other gods they kept choosing to trust in other nations rather than in the lord And so part of the consequence was exile being taken out of their homeland and shipped to another part of the world. And yet God still says, I love you. He still speaks comfort to them. And I start thinking about how broad God's love is, how enduring it is. Because, you know, like I said, the first 39 verses, the first 39 chapters of, of Isaiah, most of it's pretty hard to read. Most of it's pretty hard to hear. And then you get to chapter 40. Now it's interesting because in the Bible, you just, I mean, if most you turn over a page. But in terms of biblical, in terms of the biblical prophecy, there's like 150 years that separate verse, or excuse me, chapter 39 and chapter 40. And I begin to think about how far into the future God's love will go. Not only to the time when Israel returns from exile, not only to the time when the Messiah Jesus will be born, but even to the future that's even beyond us, God's love endures through all of this. Are you with me? So, if that wasn't enough, in chapters 9-11, and 11, God talks more about love. There's even more. He tells, He says to uh, to Zion and to Jerusalem, "Go and proclaim this. Go stand on top of the hills." And proclaim this gospel. Actually, uh, it's good news in Hebrew, but in Greek, it's Evangelion, which is the word that we translate as gospel. It says, "Go and proclaim this gospel. That the Lord is coming. That He is coming, and His arm will rule for Him. Go and proclaim this good news." Now, in this, now this is actually a picture. The way He's describing this as realizing that this is how is speaking of how God will bring his people back from exile. How God will gather his people up and bring them. And it's like, and now we hear this, we hear, you know, God is mighty and his arm will rule and he's coming with his reward and his recompenses before him. Now for us, this sounds really nice, but actually in the ancient world, this is an image of what it looks like when a king returns from victory. When a king who's been out on battle and has won and he returns to his people and he brings the reward with him. I believe as I'm reading this passage, it's actually the reward is the people of Israel that he's bringing back from exile. That he will bring them back, that they are the reward and he's bringing them home. And then begins to talk about the Lord as this shepherd. He says that he will shepherd his people. And he will draw these lambs, he'll gather these lambs up, the most vulnerable of the flock, right? Little lambs. He'll gather them up. It says he'll hold them to his bosom, which is an old way of saying he'll gather them and he'll hug them to his chest. This tender moment of this mighty God who is victorious king, who's returned from battle, who's returned from victory, and he gathers up the littlest of the lambs and he hugs them to his chest. What an image of our God! And it says that he will hold, that he will lead the ewes, those. <coughs> The Jews who were pregnant, the ones who had lambs still waiting to be born, that he will lead them. And this week I was reflecting on this sum about God as this good shepherd. And we hear that lots in the church. God, is, the Lord is our good shepherd. And it made me think of a book that actually, Mike, that you gave me years ago uh, about Ian Moelle I think is maybe how you say it. Uh, he is a pastor and a shepherd in uh, Bevanby, B.C., up north. And he's written this whole book, this reflection on what it's like to be a pastor and what it's like to be a shepherd of this huge flock. And it's interesting because, I mean, I had know nothing about uh, shepherding sheep. Um, but it's interesting, like the stuff that I do know from what I read in that book and his reflections and stuff, uh, for what I've seen on TV, for whatever that's worth, is that shepherds, shepherding sheep is very different than herding cattle. And if any of you have any experience, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it looks to me like when you lead, actually when you're herding cattle, that everybody, the people who are herding, are at the back and on the sides, pushing the cows and keeping them contained, right? But when you're he- when you're shepherding sheep, I notice that the shepherd is out in front, that the sheep follow, and I get the sense that shepherding sheep is is different than herding cattle. Cal, you're trying to get them to do the right thing and you're trying to push them one way. But sheep, it's almost like there's more of like this um, this love or this care. and That you care for them and that the sheep follow you. I don't know, Bill, is this similar? Is this true? Yeah. That, that they tend to um, connect with you more and you care for them more. Because, I mean, God could have used any of these images to speak to us of what His love is like. He could have said... You know, I'll be like a a great cattle herder, and I'll use my long stick to poke you in the right direction. But he said, no, I'm a shepherd. And he gathers the lambs up in his arms and he hugs them to his chest. What an image of the Lord God and his love for us. So, as we read through Isaiah, not only do we get the sense of how deeply God loves us, how long his love endures, regardless of how broken we are or how rebellious we are, rebellious we are. We get this great picture of this God who says, "Comfort, comfort my people." Speak right to their heart. And he comes like this mighty warrior king who is victorious in battle who brings his his reward back. And in the very next sentence it talks about him as this shepherd who gathers up the lambs, the the most the littlest, the most vulnerable. He gathers them up and hugs them to his chest. And he leads the ewes who are already pregnant with sheep, with lambs to come. This tender God that we that we serve, this tender God that loves us, even though He is mighty. Now, if we were to stop there, that to me would be pretty amazing. But this text is important to us as followers of Jesus, not because not just because it gives us this amazing picture of what God is like, but also because of these words. It says, "A voice is calling." Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. These are the very words that John the Baptist spoke in his ministry to prepare the way for God to come for Jesus. These are the very words that John the Baptist spoke in his way of preparing the people of God, saying, your God is coming, get ready. And in Jesus' we see a visible image of the invisible God. God who is up there and distant and far from us and so holy that we didn't even know how to relate to him. We see this God take on flesh and become a child who had no place, who wasn't born in a castle or a palace, but was actually born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. Who grew up to be a man who taught us what it was like to follow God. You know, we see, we read uh, this chapter 40, we read this chapter 40 of what God's love is like. We get these pictures of this shepherd who holds up his sheep. We get this picture of this God who says, comfort, comfort my people. And we see it lived out in Jesus. We see flesh and blood put on to this idea, this love of God. As we read through the Gospels, or the stories that you remember of the Gospels, how many times do you hear Jesus saying, comfort, comfort my people. How many times do we see him forgiving? People who the rest of the of the culture, the rest of society was saying, these people are worthless. These people are never, they're, there's no, they're not good for anything. They'll never amount to anything. Almost like they enjoyed hating. Them. And yet these were the very people that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. We see Jesus put flesh and blood on Isaiah 40. We see Jesus put flesh and blood on this, this idea of this good shepherd. This good shepherd who would uh, gather up the, all of his people and hug them close to his chest. We see this in the fact that the Father sent his son, Yahweh, God the Father, sent his son to die to take away our sin that we might be forgiven. How amazing is that love? I can't imagine that. Imagine that, sending your own child to die for the sake of others. Or what about Jesus himself, our Lord, who wasn't coerced or forced or manipulated, but chose it to come, to take on flesh, to live here, to be human, even though he was fully God, and then to die on a cross so that we could be made right. There's this one time when Jesus was teaching his disciples the night before he's betrayed, he said, No greater love has a person than this, that they lay down their life for the sake of their friend. That's exactly the kind of great love that Jesus had for us, that he laid down his life for us. This morning, as we talk about love, I pray that you hear this biblical kind of love, this love of God that endures. This love of God that is deeper than infatuation or (laughs) bigger than I love the decorations. This kind of love that endures. This love of God that makes sacrifices for us. I pray this morning that you receive it. And I was thinking about this. You know, guys, that we... Love is (laughs) different for us. And I hear love and sometimes it can can sound almost too sentimental, but then I start thinking about this love of a father. I think, guys, we can relate to that. Some of us, the love of our own fathers or the love of being a father, the love we have for our kids. This is the kind of love that God has for us and I pray that today you'd receive this love, this love of Jesus. And ladies, the same for you. (laughs) Sometimes I'm envious of you. It seems like you sort of have a, a better understanding of love. Like it comes easier for you to receive it and to give it. But I pray that today you also receive this love of God. This mighty warrior, this king who has returned from battle with, with reward and with recompense and before him. But he's also this, this tender shepherd who gathers these lambs together, who gathers the ewe lambs together, and he hugs them to his chest. I pray that all of us receive this love and then that we live it. That in these next few days, these next few weeks, that we receive this love and we live it, give it to others. This is what I pray for us. Let us receive this love of God. This God whose love endures through the generations, regardless of what we've done or what we've said or how far off we think we are, let us receive this love of God. Because it is good. He is the good shepherd. Amen.